Hi, welcome to episode 639 of the Fantastic Forecast. I'm Dave Elliott, and I have a lot more time to do this podcast now, ever since they shut down the Jeremy Renner app. Every week on the Fantastic Forecast, I'll be talking about a different issue of the Fantastic Four, starting with issue one and going all the way to issue two of volume 18. And today it's Fantastic Four, volume six, number four, released in November 2018. Irreplaceable by writer Dan Slott and artist uh, Stefano Caselli and Nico Leone. We start with the news report from a reporter holding a microphone that says, Fact Channel. Why do I get the feeling this kind of channel that would call itself the Fact Channel probably doesn't report any facts? Lots of specials on alien abductions, Bigfoot, and other assorted conspiracies. So the guy is reporting on an alarm going off at a jewelry store, and he's standing right out in front, right in front of the jewelry store, while the robbery is still going on, and the police haven't even arrived yet. How exactly did the Fact Channel get there so fast, by the way? He does point out that the jewelry store is right across from the street from the Baxter building. So I guess the reporter was there covering Fantastic Four? Related news? Ooh, a crime taking place near the Baxter building. Why is that a surprise? The Fantastic Four attract crime the way I attract clowns. No, I do not want a balloon animal. Go away, you scare me, friggin' clowns. Next we see the robbers. It's the Wrecking Crew. Bulldozer, The Wrecker, Thunderball, and Pile Driver. And this is new. Bulldozer is now a female. Is this a different person or the same person? I don't know. Oh, how progressive of the Wrecking Crew to, to finally have a female member now. But oddly enough, she's still showing a lot more skin than the other members of the group, so maybe it's not so progressive. The reporter goes over to interview The Wrecker, this reporter has balls. Usually during a robbery, it's not a good idea to go over and interview the robbers. The record mentions that the big blue force showed up in the sky and every single hero who has ever been associated with the Fantastic Four disappeared, which would have happened at the same time as the end of issue two. He says, it's the perfect time to rob the jewelry store across the street from the Baxter building. Actually, you know an even better place to go rob a jewelry store? Any city other than New York. Because none of them have superheroes. Ever. Some lady fires off a flare gun and she says, There are some new heroes in town. And next, out of the Baxter building comes that new group calling themselves the Fantastics. I hate them already. There's one woman that has ice powers. She, I guess she's like the Human Torch replacement. And there's some big blue guy. I guess he's the Thing's replacement. A flying blonde woman. Sue's replacement. And some guy who comes out stretching. I'm not sure who he's supposed to be replacing. The big blue guy says, The baddest, the best, except no substitutes. And then the stretchy guy, the flat stretchy guy, he says, Um, that's exactly what we're asking them to do. I kind of get the feeling that this group is going to go over just as well as Coy and Vance Duke. 
Meanwhile, in one of those Franklin-created universes, Reed and Valeria are working to repair their, that teleportation device. Power Man seems concerned that it won't work, and he won't be able to get back to his wife and kids. I'm surprised he has a wife. I guess his time with Iron Fist was just a experimental phase. Valeria mentions a tachyon distributor. Tachyon particles? Isn't that a thing from Star Trek? Last issue, she mentioned a flux capacitor. Dan Slott can't come up with his own technological terms, so he's stealing from Back to the Future and Star Trek? Well, that's pretty pathetic. That Arboro guy asks what a tachyon is. Valeria seems dismissive of him, saying that he doesn't have to worry about it. Iceman mentions the one adventure he had with the FF once, and just like last issue, Johnny loses his shit. What exactly was the so-called adventure he had with the Human Torch that Johnny does not want to talk about? More experimentation? Oh, the writers of the FF always make it so easy to make such lowbrow jokes. Next up, uh, which is the best scene in the issue? It's the best scene to ever appear in the pages of the Fantastic Four. Dragon Man is saying that he wants to stay behind and find the Molecule Man. Alex Powers is going to stay too. And all of the kids from the Future Foundation are going to stay. Reed asks the Dragon Man if he can take care of all those kids. And he says he can. So Reed and Sue are like, totally okay with leaving all these kids behind in an alien dimension in the care of an android dragon man. Are Franklin and Valeria staying? Oh, of course not. They gotta go back to Earth. Uh, this is so crazy. If Dan Slott wanted to get rid of the Future Foundation kids, have them go back to Earth and then go back to their own families or nations or whatever. But just to leave them behind in what is most likely a very dangerous place is crazy. In the last issue, they just encountered what Sue called the gravest threat to this multiverse ever. So let's just leave this group of kids behind. It's pretty irresponsible of Reed and Sue. And I love it. I'm not going to argue with anything that gets rid of Vil, Wu, Adolf Impossible, Dragon Man, Anomi, Alex Power, Tong, Kor, Turg, Mick, Leech, Artie, and Bitly23. Wow. Good riddance. So they load up the ship and they go flying off. Next, the teleporter's ready and Reed starts sending people back in waves. One small group of Spider-Man, Wolverine, and Ghost Rider are together, which Johnny calls them the new Fantastic Four. You know, just because the four of them teamed up in the pages of the Fantastic Four once, along with the Hulk, doesn't make them any kind of Fantastic Four. They wonder where the Hulk is anyway. Reed thinks it's odd that the Hulk didn't teleport there too. After sending that last wave away, Bruce Banner finally reveals himself. Turns out, Bruce says that the Hulk did not like being used like that against his will, and he might hold a grudge. Send me back now, he says, and Reed immediately complies. So now Valeria has to say goodbye to Prince Arboro, and we finally see some of his other people, and they come in drastically different colors. You know, if you think racism is bad on Earth, where people come in shades of white, tan, and brown. Just imagine how bad racism is when the people are bright red, blue, and yellow. Valeria suggests that Arboro come with them. Did she run that by did she run that by her father first? Sure, weird pointy-eared space alien with a rock-hard six-pack abs. 
Sure, come live with my 13-year-old daughter. But Arboro declines, saying that he has to stay with his people. They need him. It looks like they're going in for a goodbye kiss when Reed stretches his head over between them and says the teleporter is losing its charge and they gotta go right away. Valeria asks her dad why it seems like he doesn't like Arboro, and he replies, surprisingly, it's not because he's an alien who wants to bang his 12, 13-year-old daughter, because we know that Reed considers that perfectly normal. He says that it's because when Valeria is around Arboro, she plays dumb. He says that she's smart, smarter than everybody, and she should never act like she's not. Well, that's really not the best advice, is it? So the remaining six of them stand together, and Reed flips the switch to teleport them home back to the Baxter building. As they reappear, Johnny mentions that the FF no longer owned the Baxter building. It was purchased by Spider-Man, who became a billionaire but then lost all his money and had to sell the building. Well, that sounds like an awful idea. First of all, how did Peter Parker become a billionaire and how did he lose a billion dollars? Like, how stupid? How much of an idiot do you have to be to lose a billion dollars? Maybe Spidey should run for president. Johnny also mentions that he and Deadpool became Avengers. Well, that also sounds pretty stupid. I guess that's why this is the only Marvel book I read anymore. They look over and they see a crowd of people cheering for the Fantastics. The FF are confused until they look over and see the Fantastics fighting the Wrecking Crew. Johnny doesn't seem to recognize the Fantastics, but he's only been gone a few hours, so this makes no sense. Johnny flames on and he's going to join the fight. Ben seems totally disinterested. He says he's going to go see Alicia. Franklin says he's going too. Reed is like, but you're our most powerful member. You know, this stuff about, oh, Valeria, you're so much smarter than me. Oh, Franklin, you're so much more powerful than us. What is the point of this comic? They might as well call it Powerhouse and Brainstorm. By the way, the Wrecking Crew are extremely dangerous. These people have given Thor and the Hulk a run for their money. They're not second-rate losers that you can just ignore, like Ben Grimm is doing. As Johnny approaches the fight, the crowd tells him to back off. This is the Fantastics fight. Johnny's confused, thinking that maybe Reed sent them to an alternate universe. Reed assures everyone that they're in the correct place. Johnny tries to join the fight, but he just seems to be in the way. As the Fantastic fight, Fantastics fight, we get their names as a banter. There's Ice Cube, Iceberg, who's a big blue guy. There's 2D the flat, stretchy guy, Miss Fantastics, the Sue-like Sue lady, and we don't get the name of the other person, but she has like a diamond-like hardness. Sue is like, Ben and Franklin were right and they should have sat this out. Once again, this ain't the headmen. The Wrecking Crew are some serious folks. Some new team of amateurs should not be left to fight them alone. Next, Ben and Franklin are at Alicia's apartment, and she's giving Franklin a big hug. She starts talking about how they shouldn't waste time and should get married right away. This weekend, she says. Ben agrees, saying, whatever makes you happy. You know, odd that she's in such a hurry. She's only been dating Ben for about 55 years. Okay, in Marvel time, it's been, what, 10 years? Still a long time. Back outside, 
the reporter from Fact Channel is talking to the not it's Fact Channel, not Fat Channel. It's talking to the lady who fired off that flare gun at the beginning of the issue. She says she works in the building, and I'm sure that's something the readers of the comic were dying to know all about this flare lady. During the news report, we learn that the fourth member of the team is called Hope. As in, I hope we never see the Fantastics again. I guess it's supposed to be like Hope Diamond. Valeria decides to give the reporter a piece of her mind, saying that the attention should not be on the new team of knockoffs, but on the return of the world-famous Fantastic Four. Valeria yanks the mic from the news reporter, and she uses it to speak to the crowd? Now, this is not the way a news reporter's microphone works. This is not a microphone that is used to speak to large crowds, like at a concert or speech. It's not hooked up to giant speakers, it's a news microphone. So dumb. So anyway, Valeria says to the Wrecking Crew that whatever the Fantastics are paying them, the Fantastic Four will double. The Wrecker stops, and he's like, okay, it's a deal. And just like that, the Fantastics are revealed as frauds. Thank God, they really are terrible characters. Reed tells Valeria he was wondering how long it would take her to figure it out. So the reporter goes over it and asks how they figured it out. And Valeria says the fact that people had showed up with homemade signs. People don't normally do that for superhero teams they've, they've never heard of. It was a terrible mistake in judgment by the Fantastics. And Miss Fantastic jokes that they would have gotten away with it if it weren't for that meddling kid. Of course, you have to think that people on Twitter would also notice this and point out the glaring mistake as well. We learned that in addition to paying the Wrecking Crew, they paid the civilians on the street, and they paid the jewelry store. How the hell did they think this conspiracy would remain secret with so many people involved? So idiotic. It's like using a sharpie to draw your own hurricane path on an official weather map. Somebody's gonna notice. That reference is not gonna age well. The Wrecking Crew are still getting arrested. I assume they have outstanding warrants for many other crimes. In a confusing development, Reed goes on camera and says that it appears that the young people on the Fantastics team were not aware that this was a sham, even though it seems obvious they were in on the sham uh, from the conversations they were having on camera. Miss Fantastic tells Brenda, the flare gun lady, you are so fired. The Fantastics inform the FF that they own the Baxter building. Where did they get that kind of money? One of them must be some rich asshole playing at being a superhero. Reed is like, okay, saying that the Baxter building isn't important, and they shake hands with the Fantastics, wishing them well. Johnny wonders where they're going to live now. Why is he asking that? Where is he living now? He can live there. It's not like he's been gone for five years. He's been gone for a few hours. Ben arrives with a Fantastic car, the classic flying bathtub, which he pulled out of storage. FF writers love that old flying bathtub. It just keeps getting dredged up over and over again, despite the fact that it is really ridiculous. But I love it too. Ben says they can stay at his place as he flies his ship down Yancey Street. Why does he live on Yancey Street? Is he a glutton for punishment? Is he going to subject his blind wife to non-stop harassment from the Yancey Street gang too? They get to his building, Sue asks what the address is, and Ben is like, oh look at this, as he points to the number 4 on the door. Oh, that's so crazy. The address, the street address, is 4 Yancey Street. And this is how the issue ends with that dopey 4 on the wall.
The end. And that's another meh issue of the Fantastic Four. Are the Fantastics going to be an important part of this run? I sure hope not. I do not care for them at all. Also, this is another issue where Valeria saves the day. Is this some kind of wish fulfillment comic for preteen girls? I think they need to start marketing this comic to a different audience. On a scale of 1 to 4, I give it a 1.5. So that's all for now. If you have any questions about the Fantastic Four, about this podcast, or if you need... Oh, wait a minute. Welcome to episode 639, part 2 of the Fantastic Forecast. I'm Dave Elliott, and when I get married, I'm going to have a special podcast episode to discuss how hell has frozen over. Today, it's a special issue of Fantastic Four. It's Fantastic Four Wedding Special number 1 from November 2018, featuring several wedding-themed stories. The first one is Invisible Girls Gone Wild by Gail Simone and Laura Braga. The story starts with what appears to be someone's shrine to the Mole Man. Lots of pictures of Mole Man put up on the wall, including a hunky man in underwear with Mole Man's face taped over the other guy's face. If you're the kind of person with a crush on the Mole Man, hunky muscular guys aren't really your type. They should tape Mole Man's face on a short stocky guy's half-naked body. Someone with green gloves pulls the photo of hunky man with Mole Man's face off the wall and says, No, 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 never! There's also some old Fantastic Four question and answer sheets on the floor. Not sure where this place is. The person in green, uh, he's got, he or she has green boots, green pants, green cape. No idea who this person is. So back at Ben's townhouse, it's like a three-story place. They call it the new Fantastic Four headquarters, which I can already say is the worst team headquarters ever. Sue, Alicia, and some green-haired tattooed girl named Ricky are planning Alicia's bachelorette party. I don't know who this Ricky is. I thought maybe she was a friend of Alicia's, but at one point, she forgets that Alicia is blind, which is something you'd only forget if you were, if you had, like, just met that person. Clearly, not a friend of Alicia's. Does Alicia have friends? Well, later in the conversation, we learn that Alicia had asked Ricky to prepare the bachelorette party, and Sue says, Ricky, I'm glad Alicia has a friend like you. Some friend who forgets that Alicia is blind. Ben enters the room and says he needs to chat with Sue. This is weird. Ben asks Sue to watch over Alicia and make sure she's not kidnapped by Annihilus, carjacked by Galactus, or made someone's herald. It sounds like Ben is dying. What kind of weird request is this? He's marrying Alicia. That's kind of his job to protect her now, especially since, as Ben's wife, Alicia is going to be in constant danger and will most likely be murdered at some point by supervillains. Anyway, Sue promises to look out after Alicia, and there will be no shenanigans. I assume he's talking about watching out for her between now and the wedding, but he doesn't make that clear. And then, two more friends of Alicia show up. A buff, red-headed lady with a mohawk, and a black woman with blonde hair. The one thing Alicia's friends all have in common 
All three of them are wearing short shirts that show off their stomachs. If you're a chick that likes to show off your stomach, Alicia will be your friend. And then more ladies show up, Jennifer Walters, Medusa, and Crystal. Johnny flies by looking for some last minute libations for what he will say he says will be a night of legendary debauchery. I doubt that. Johnny notices that he has so many ex-girlfriends present. Medusa says, I've had better. We've all had better. Burn. Well anyway, Johnny is rich and he's attractive. Maybe his problem with women is a size problem? Let's move on. The limo driver is there. All the women get in. The limo the limo driver seems rude, and Sue mentions that he has a Latvian accent. Oh come on. First rule of being a member of the Fantastic Four should be don't get in a limo being driven by a guy with a Latvian accent. So they get to a strip club called World War Hunk. Why would they name their strip club after a comic book story? Especially since this comic book story wasn't a comic book story, but it was real life in the Marvel Universe. So this club is a superhero themed club with waiters dressed up like superheroes. Now you would think people like Thor and Captain America would sue their asses off. So the girls are hanging out, drinking champagne and looking at all the scantily clad men. And by the way, is a strip club really the best place? to take a blind woman. Oh, I'm sure Alicia is having a great time. Until a, then a man in an Iron Man costume comes over and allows Alicia to help him take the armor off. But before Alicia can get to touch anything other than cold hard metal, a big giant hole opens up in the floor with a big underground drilling machine. Sue screams, it's the mole man. A bunch of moloids scream, The human female! Destroy her for our ruler! Jennifer turns into She-Hulk and starts smashing away on the big drill machine. All the rest of the women start fighting the moloids. And then the real villain reveals herself, the person in green from earlier. It's not the Mole Man, it's Kala, queen of the Atlantean city of Natheria, forever now known as, she says, as Mole Woman. Turns out she was spurned by the Mole Man, who really ought to lower his standards because the Mole Woman is really quite a catch, especially if you're a short, pudgy little man who lives underground. Basically, she wants to impress the Mole Man by denying love and contentment to his greatest enemies. In other words, another bad guy with a very shaky motivation here. She-Hulk seems a bit slow. I don't know what's going on with her. She punches Mole Woman and says, Hulk smash puny self-esteem issues. And then, the Latvian limo driver comes in with his umbrella, and he hits a moloid with it and says, Latveria curses you. I'm not sure what that's all about. So they all fight a little longer, until the mole man himself finally arrives. He pops up and says, Kala, no, this is wrong. He reiterates the fact that he is not in love with her, and that he wants nothing to do with her. I can't imagine a woman looking like Kala getting dumped by someone as ugly as Mole Man. Mole Man apologizes to Sue Richards, who they're now calling Susan Storm Richards. Like, when did that happen? Was she inspired by Julie Chin Moonves? And then we learn about the Mole Man. He's in a good mood. He says he's found someone who cares for him and he cares for in return. I don't know who he's talking about, but he goes on to say, unlike poor Kala, 
I do believe in love. And he goes back into his hole and leaves a gift behind. They open the bag, expecting to see a toaster. Like, where would Mole Man get a toaster? I doubt Amazon has an underground delivery system. They open it up, and it's a bag of diamonds. And then we learn why the limo driver has been so grumpy. Even though I wasn't really asking myself that. Turns out, he had to work, even though it's his and his wife's 30th anniversary. So they have him call up his wife, and they take the two of them out to a nice dinner. And then skating at an outdoor rink. A tour of the Statue of Liberty in an invisible force bubble, some kissing on the Brooklyn Bridge, and then a nightclub called Tigra's. At the end of the night, the limo driver thanks Sue, and she says, It's about love that never stops growing, and tells him to look up in the sky. It's one of the uh, newer Fantastic Cars. T Sue takes the driver's seat and drives all the women and the limo driver and his wife home, or back to the limo driver's limo which was left back at the strip club. I was just wondering, if they had a, did they take the limo to all these locations or did they leave the limo behind and take the taxi? They didn't clearly didn't take the fantastic car. Why wouldn't they take the limo? And if they did take the limo, did they make him drive? So that's the end of the story. Next up, Father Figure by Dan Slott and Mark Buckingham. This story starts at 4 Yancey Street, which this calls this story calls the home of Alicia Masters and her fiance Ben Grimm. Has Alicia always lived here? You would think that the fact that she was on Yancey Street would have been mentioned before. I really like the art in this is story, by the way. It's very Kirby-esque, big and bold. This is how the FF should look. So Alicia is wishing Ben good luck. He's got a suit on, and he's gonna go do something important. He gets on the gets on his flying jet cycle, and he heads to the raft maximum security prison where they hold a bunch of supervillains. A place where you can imagine the thing is not incredibly popular. So they lead Ben through some big doors and into a room where the puppet master is chained to a chair, like he's some kind of super dangerous mass murderer, when he's always just been a B-level nuisance. There's another metal chair which Ben just rips up out of the ground and he puts down closer to the puppet master. You know, there's, this is more completely unnecessary vandalism. Considering how much destruction Ben has caused over the years, he should be imprisoned in the raft, too. So he sits down to have a chat with Puppet Master, Alicia's evil stepfather. He explains why he's all chained up, that if he got a hold of any of, this, any of his radioactive clay, he could use it to get the governor or president to give him a full pardon as if that radioactive clay would be easy to find while in prison. It's not like he has any friends who would smuggle some in. So Ben is chatting with Puppet Master, his future stepfather-in-law. By the way, would it be permissible to have sex with your stepfather-in-law? That's really far enough away to be okay, right? So Ben tells Mr. Masters that he is a threat to Alicia and his future happiness. You know what else is a threat to Alicia's future happiness? Ben Grimm! Ben tells him about his plans to marry Alicia, and surprisingly, he says, That's why I'm here, to ask for your blessing. Puppet Master responds by going on what sounds like a supervillain rant, and then he says, Ah, oh, who am I kidding? You have my blessing. And then he calls Ben his son. 
Damn, and I thought my Thanksgiving dinners with family were awkward. Wait until this, wait until these dinners. So Ben heads home to Alicia and tells her that her stepfather said yes. Ben seems way too happy over this. Like, why does he care? But he leaves the room and we see Alicia with a puppet master doll in the shape of the puppet master. Are we, and we're led to believe that she manipulated her stepfather into giving his approval. And if so, I like it. This is like the first time in all these years that she's done anything less than honest. Holy crap! It just occurred to me. I've always wondered how Alicia made all these sculptures of famous supervillains like Doctor Doom, Blastar, Diablo, Sandman, etc. I was just reading Marvel 2 and 160 the other day and she had all those statues. She has to touch her subjects and feel them a lot in order to make these statues. I always assumed she was some kind of super villain groupie, whoring herself out to supervillains so she could make these statues. But after this scene, where we see her using the Puppet Master puppet, this is my new theory that Alicia makes a puppet of these supervillains and commands them to come to her place where she fills them up and makes a statue of them. That's how she does it. Finally, a mystery solved. So Alicia puts the Puppet Master doll into some kind of tube and puts it up on a, sh on a shelf, and that is the end of the story. The final story, if we can call it that, is The Puppet Master's Lament by Fred Hembeck. I used to love Fred Hembeck. I loved reading his two-page comic strips in Marvel Age, but as an adult, I can't stand them. Reading a wordy Fred Hembeck piece is just about the most tedious thing ever. This story here is three pages, it's 30 panels of Puppet Master talking. He goes on to talk about himself, and he mentions that his radioactive clay killed his wife, Aunt Alicia's mother, and robbed Alicia of her sight. Did we know that before? He's such a dick. He mentions using his puppets to go after those do-gooders, the Fantastic Four. He also mentions that he does not want to pay for the wedding. And then he says he needs to get his clay and make some new puppets. Clearly, this is not canon. Ben shows up at the end and he calls him dad. So that is the end of the issue. Coming in the next issue of the Fantastic Four, it says, no bait, no switch, not a dream, not a hoax. And we swear, not a single scroll around, this is really happening from the book that brought you the first, best, and longest-running superhero ma marriage in comics, we give you the wedding of Ben Grimm and Alicia Masters. And based on the cover to the next issue, it looks more like Ben is getting married to Mary Jane Watson, or Mary Jane Parker, Mary Jane Parker Watson, whatever. Anyway, on a scale of one to four, I give the wedding special a two and a half. I think it may be I, mean, I think it may be my favorite so far of the Dan Slot issues. It was a fun issue and I like the art better than in the regular series. So that's all for now. If you have any questions about the Fantastic Four, about this podcast, or if you need relationship advice, you can email me at podcastff at gmail.com. You can download other episodes at I at Apple Podcast? I don't know what it's called now. Or find them all at www.podcastff.podbean.com. So long, kids. This podcast is over. Take a look in the mirror. Tell me how we live and like we should.
saving love. 